Welcome to the Debbie debate. All right, boys, are we ready to debate? Bruni, are you ready to go head to head with me? I am. Gotta get my popcorn out here. Hold on, that works. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. I'm Felix Sharp. I know you didn't think that we would get through this episode without mentioning the name one Zach F. Wilson. It is first and goal. Ball spotted just inside the 10. Algier in. Wilson faked it to him and keeps it. Zach Wilson, the speed, and he dives for the end zone. Touchdown. That's Austin Nate. Gibbs, who is probably going to be the best pass catcher out of the three. Now. Down. He's going to get after it again. And look at the speed and the spark and the score from Gibbs. Just what Georgia Tech needed. That's Matt Bruning. G. Scott Jr. Obviously, I waxed poetic about him on the last episode, so I won't do that again here. And it's on his field. But the carry watch up. Justin Fields. Hello, Columbus. 51 yards. Austin, you tweeted something, bro. You tweeted your running back ranking. Explain yourself. Boy, that escalated quickly. I mean, that really got out of hand fast. Ohio State fan talking there. Oh, shit. That is why you come to the Debbie debate. Apologies to Kirk Herbstreit. We ran out of time. We'll get him rescheduled soon. And for Matt Bruning and Austin Nace, I'm Felix Sharp. Good night and good luck. It's 9.30 Eastern, the only time zone that gets the show. That means it's time for the Debbie debate. That's Matt Bruning. That's Austin Nason. I'm Felix Sharp. On a highly questionable version of tonight's show, we do the Debbie Debates Playoff Edition. Chris Moxley joins the show for a cold shower and a special parting shot for anyone who understands the reference. May! But we start with Kyle Trask in the Cotton Bowl on as we speak. He's thrown three interceptions. Austin. What is his outlook and what should be the takeaways from his performance tonight? So I'm not even watching this game. Uh, I've been re-watching the Marvel movies with my wife, so we, we were doing that this evening. But I can tell you exactly what's happening in this game without even, even you know watching it. Um, Kyle Trask, for, you know, for all the crap I give him, he throws a very catchable ball. Unfortunately, the ball is also very catchable for the defense. He just doesn't have the arm strength, and he's not mobile. I mean, he has zero traits that you look for in a starting NFL quarterback nowadays. Um, I, I mean, I, I have him as my eleventh quarterback in this class. I, ha- I own him in zero leagues on zero teams, and I won't draft him anywhere this year. It could be the fourth round. It's a wasted pick. I'm not taking him. So, I mean, good luck to him. Um, but I think we saw what the offense was with with uh, Pitts not playing tonight. <laughs> Damn, that's a lot of zeros. Um, zero, zero traits, yeah, zero, zero rosters, zero. All right, all right. Uh, uh, we'll see if Florida um, can mount a comeback. It's currently 13-24 with a minute and twelve left in the third. We're going going to continue with our outlook on potential twenty twenty one breakout candidates. And Austin, do you think that there are, or who is a uh, player that you think will be rowing the boat? For PJ Fleck and the Golden Gophers in 2021. Yeah, so Minnesota has the kind of their um, their prototype that they like to bring in their receiver down to a T at this point. I mean, I think um, you know you had Ty Johnson and then uh, Rashad Bateman, who is kind of you know pr- profiles pretty similarly to him, uh, albeit maybe on the outside where J- where Johnson's in the slot. Uh, I really like Daniel Jackson. 
he it was a true freshman this year, uh, four-star kid in this class, uh, number 52 wide receiver in his class. He's six foot 200, so very similarly sized to Bateman. Um, and he don't don't get him confused with Daniel Jackson from Iowa State. There are two of them. Um, so I, I've seen uh, some confusion in terms of ad drops and trades this year on fan tracks. Um, so uh, make sure you're checking that when you if you're moving for him. Um, he didn't break out this year, though, because time just wasn't on his side. I mean, Minnesota only got five games in. But those are the teams that I think present a lot of value on their rosters moving in, moving forward. A lot of the Pac-12 teams and then a lot of the Big, uh, Big Ten teams as well, uh, just because some of these guys didn't really get a chance to, to develop as the year went on. Uh, he still played a decent amount of snaps this year, even only in five games. Um, he started out the year at about 20 or so, but by the end of the year, the last three games, he was getting 60-plus. So uh, why I think he will break out next year, uh, he's just a very smooth athlete at a nice size, um, Minnesota, you know, even if he never becomes a huge NFL prospect, if you're in a C2C league, they have a history of the wide receiver one and the wide receiver two in that offense producing at a nice level. Uh, I'm assuming that Tanner Morgan returns next year. He didn't really put enough on tape, uh, for me to think that he's moving to the NFL. Um, he excels a lot in short and intermediate stuff. So he does need to work uh, on being more efficient deep. But, you know, for a guy that probably you can get for is like a cheap throw in on a trade, if you're in, a, you know, a deep dev or a C2C league, I think there are, you know, not a lot of candidates that I'd rather um, go after than a guy like Daniel Jackson. Verified 4.5 in the 40, 4.26 in the shuttle and 38 inch vertical. That's uh, some pretty good um, physical measurables and you like to see the 40 time correspond with the higher vertical to show that that explosiveness is potentially elite and speaking of explosiveness my 2021 breakout candidate is another wide receiver who posted who posted uh, verified results in 2018 a 443 uh, in the 40 a sub 4 shuttle time 395 39 inch vertical uh, all at 190 six foot 190 pounds and that sub four shuttle time stood out to me. So I looked at the uh, 2020 NFL combine numbers and it, yes, it would have been the best time at the NFL combine had it had he run this year. Only uh, the only sub four time at the NFL combine this year was a three, uh, three, nine, seven posted by Penn state cornerback, John Reed. And so this player, this, uh, uh, this player in 2018 as a high schooler, posted a better shuttle time and those are not fake those aren't fake numbers he was actually the fastest man he won the fastest man competition at the, uh, the 2018 night the opening at uh, the, the fastest man competition at the opening um true freshman this season in the sec accounted for 18 percent of his team's receiving yardage and was second on the team in receiving and that's jermaine burton jermaine burton uh, you know that he is he has to be explosive because his yards per catch average is higher than George Pickens. George Pickens is at 13 and he's at 15 at a true as a true freshman. Austin, you tweeted earlier today uh, that that you want to get your hands on these Georgia wide receivers because there isn't anyone coming in and JT Daniels is going to be there for a whole season as the starter. JT Daniels only started three games this year. He threw for 400, 140, and 300 yards. I, I, I think that Georgia's receiving core could be 
similar to what we've seen from Alabama recently, where you have two players or three players putting up kind of ridiculous numbers. And again, Jermaine Burton coming in, playing as a true freshman during the pandemic, got cut down on training camp. I I think that he's a candidate to blow up next year. We didn't see him return any punts or kicks this year. That task was left to Kiaris Jackson. You got to think that's because Jackson is the veteran and had, had been there. But I think that if you get a full training camp and the coaches are allowed to see it, that you might even see Burton um, returning punts and kicks next year. Now, I, I like versatility at any position. At the wide receiver position, I want you to be able to take the top off the defense. I want you to be able to separate. I want you to be able to run after the catch. And he can do all three. So my 2021 potential breakout candidate is Jermaine Burton, who people are pretty high on in the Debbie community, despite him being a, a, a four-star uh, prospect. So looking forward to him uh, developing especially considering his diverse skill set. Bruning, let me toss it to you. Who is your uh, potential 2021 breakout? Uh, so I'm going to talk about a running back out of Florida State, and we just talked about this pre-show, and I'm already going to mess up his name again because I forgot, but it's Lawrence Tofele. Is that right? Help me out, Tofele. Austin. I know Lawrence Tofele. Tofele. Okay, there we go. See, you told me that like four times, and I already forgot how to say it. Uh, was former four-star uh, coming into college, 19th-ranked RB in his class. Uh, the biggest thing I've noticed uh, in his game so far this year that I like, uh, smooth receiver out of the backfield. I like his soft hands. He's got good vision, short area burst, uh, good one-cut ability. I love uh, his great contact bounce. He's constantly bouncing off defenders, uh, rarely brought down by arm tackles, which I like as well. I don't think he has much competition in that backfield either, not that I think uh, Florida State is going to be very good this year. But he has already pulled up. Let me see here. Where did I put his stats? I'm horrible about having this stuff. Uh, I did like that he ran a 4.57 uh, at his uh, at the the opening earlier this year, coming in. And so right now he has got just uh, 356 yards on just 37 attempts, though with two touchdowns. He's not been getting the workload that's going to uh, Corbin, who probably will be there again next year. He's a redshirt sophomore. More. So I imagine he's probably going to come back next year. So they'll probably still split time. Uh, but I like more what I've seen out of him than I have uh, out of Corbin. So I think he's a guy that could really break out next year, even though Florida State kind of sucks. Well, yeah, Corbin was my potential breakout last week to a feeling <laughs> potential breakout wow. this week. So we just seem to be on opposite are... ends all the time on this show. That is that is for sure. <laughs> We are uh, we are apparently high on Florida State with Mackenzie Milton uh, go transferring there, and hopefully he's healed up and and, and can um, have a good season there for the Seminoles. All right, hey, tweet at the show and let us know what collegiate players you believe will break out in 2021, and we will do a third chapter of this segment next week, taking some of your suggestions. It is time for a new segment on our show. We're going to bring in my friend Chris Moxley for Chris Moxley's Cold Shower. Chris is a true football researcher. He is generally posting inconvenient truths on Twitter. You can find him at Chris Moxley19. That's Moxley with an E. Chris is going to give us a dose of reality and a fresh, cold fantasy football shower today. Chris, 
you have been critical of the Alabama receivers, specifically with regard to production. You tweeted something earlier this week that got a lot of traction with folks that I never see interact with you. And so that was, and I'm going to quote, quote the tweet, Alabama had one of the best receiving rooms of all time, yet two of three are really struggling in the NFL. This is a warning of uh, using college teammates as an argument, dismissing collegiate production, end quote. Chris, elaborate a little bit on what you tweeted and what it means for Jerry Judy, Henry Ruggs, but also Jalen Waddell and Devonta Smith. So, yeah, thank you all for uh, for having me. I, I feel bad that I have to be introduced with like a negative segment. I, I like all these players. They're good guys. Um, but it, it's a little bit of reality that it's I'll, truth. It's a true segment. You're bringing truth. Yeah, it's you know, it's just it's tough to be that guy. My, my wife gets angry, too. So I understand. Um, so that tweet, I kind of woke up one morning and was like, man, I, I'm going to tweet something controversial. And, uh, I, a lot of the talk last off season, and it's going to happen again, this off season is Alabama had one of the greatest wide receiving rooms of all time. We saw blah, 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 blah. And you know, if your grandmother is playing in the wide receiving room, it made it even better, but we don't know that. I, I, I feel like we got a little ahead of our skis with that argument. Right. So we, Look at historically great wide receiving rooms like um, like Miami when they had Reggie Wayne and Andre Johnson. We look at LSU with OBJ and Landry, and and even Ruben Randall had a dominant season when they were there, but that's neither here nor there. Um, but we know that those are, are great teams because they were phenomenal pros. We don't know that about Alabama, and I felt like the argument that, hey, like, yes, they were good recruits. Yes, they produced very well. But like, we don't know that these are going to be high-level NFL players, they can just be NFL players that are solid and contribute well and are role players. And I think that's kind of closer to where um, I envision those players being. And that's the whole, that was really the crux of the argument I was making. Like, let's let's see how these players do before we start calling it historically great wide receiver room and totally throwing production out the door. Um, that was the concern for me. And I think it kind of came true this year. So the second part of the question really is, I, I think, an interesting one. Um, and I'll probably focus more on, on Judy and uh, Ruggs for this, but when um, we're able to evaluate this, these players at the next level, we, we can kind of draw more conclusions. So I was worried about Judy and Ruggs both as prospects. Judy had one year where he was really solid. I mean, he won the Blitnikoff, so really solid probably doesn't quite do him justice, but he had a, he had a phenomenal season. Um, and I, I think there is a... Uh, a overestimation of, Hey, like he didn't really hit all the metrics that he really needed to, two of the other three years. He was good. Um, he put up like great counting stats, but he didn't really do well from a market share perspective. I mean, there's a baseline that you want players to hit. Um, he only hit it once. Henry Ruggs is even worse. He didn't break out at all. Um, and there has never been a wide receiver drafted as a wide receiver that hit that never broke out. It will happen this season. Terry McLaurin was the first one who did it. Good for him. But it had never happened before the season. So I, I never really understood why he was going in the first, why people were hyping him up. Um, his production profile was brutal. Um, and that's like putting it nicely. And I feel like I can do that now after um, Austin kind of laid into Trask a little bit. So we, I can be a little, little more aggressive about Ruggs being quite the brutal prospect. Um, 
So that so th- that was a, a prospect profile, right? I th- neither of them were really standout prospects. Judy had some size concerns, but that is what it is, right? I was more concerned with what, what his production looked like. So now we get to the NFL, and I think we have questions about what the future looks like, which is prompt, which prompted the tweet about them struggling. Henry Ruggs has been terrible. Um, he's not producing. He is acting as a deep threat, even though he's not a deep threat, even though he's four two seven speed, which is just like. And he's like the reverse James Washington, who was like a deep threat, but kind of slow. And now he's like fast, but he's not not a deep threat. He takes a lot of slants to the house, which is fine. That's his game, except he's third in the NFL in dot currently. And he had 12 total deep catches when he was at Alabama. Like that is not that is not the player that is being utilized like that. So he's he's struggling like mightily. They are either not using him correctly or he can't be utilized that way or I don't know. To me, it suggests that he um, is not a prolific producer because he never was at the college level. Um, and I, I, I see a lot of people say, well, he has Derek Carr. Derek Carr hasn't been that bad. Derek Carr is a little bit better than I think people give him credit for. And even if Derek Carr kind of stinks, Henry, Hunter Renfro is outproducing you, dude. Nelson Aguilar is outproducing you, dude, by like double the yardage. So like, y- y- there, there's a lot of questions about Derek Carr supporting other players and what they're doing. Um, so I, I have questions about Ruggs long-term considering he's just fallen on his face this year and um, players that really fall on their face have struggle moving forward. Um, from Judy's perspective, he's a little more interesting of a case. I think what we saw with Judy in college was what everyone described as like one of the greatest route run- collegiate route runners we've ever seen. And a lot of people were saying the second he stepped into the league, he would be among the best and we're not seeing that at all. He's 91st in separation. Um, which is brutal. He's third on his team in separation behind Hamler and Noah Fant. He is not separating at all, but he's getting a lot of contested catches, which to me means a, he's not separating B he's getting thrown contested catches, even though he can't complete them. He um, he's completed them at a 27.6% rate, which is again, brutal <laughs> for uh, a guy who isn't a contested catch player relies on separation. He's not doing either of those things. So I, d- I don't know where Jerry Judy is succeeding considering he's very inefficient from a target perspective. Tim Patrick's running laps around him from an efficiency perspective. I don't know where Jerry Judy's role is. He's just getting a lot of targets and, and doing something with them. Um, I'm not concerned about the drops. I, I think that that's something that I think we need to um, like get out of our head. Drops don't really matter. But um, but yeah, I, I, I think Judy's really an interesting case because he's not a contested catch guy and he's leading the league in contested catches or contested catch targets. So I, what, what is that? I thought I saw um, that he was ranked dead last in college football last year in contested targets, like dead last, like 361st. So I don't know what's going on from a separation perspective, but I have some serious questions. Uh, so I got a question for you really quick, Chris, sure. before Austin uh, before Austin gives it to you. And I, I don't disagree with what you're saying on rugs. I don't think any of the three of us were really high on rugs coming into the process. But I wonder with what you were saying there that they're using him as a deep target. All of us who watched him at Alabama last year, that's not what he was used for in that offense. So do you think that it's more of – from a fantasy side, none of us expected him to produce. So do you think it's more of a, a – product of Oklahoma or no, Oakland my bad uh, Las Vegas is not using him the correct way or the way that they should be using him in their offense now not that we expect him to be great but maybe as bad as he's been this year is because of the product of the offense and the way they use him yeah no absolutely they're a 
definitely mismanaging him, definitely misusing him. Um, he's gonna be he's gonna be a successful role player in the NFL because just like he was in college. I just don't see from like a fantasy perspective how he ever gets to to be a significant contributor anywhere. So like if I had him on my team, I would be looking to move him. Go ahead, Austin. That was, that was the only question I had. That's fair. Um, yeah. So then uh, you're talking a little bit about you know it seems like those the you know Judy and Rugs were both uh, you know they they were usage dependent I guess and they're not they're not seeing that you know that specific usage in the NFL. Do you have the same concern with Smith and Waddle then? Yes. So it's what is this wide receiver room really? Um, and I feel like this is a public service announcement on Devonta Smith. Um, and I feel bad doing it, but I feel like we need to have this conversation. There's a three-pronged issue with him. One is he's a late breakout. Those players drafted the first round hit it a lot, a lot less. They just, that's just like how it works. They hit at 20% rate while early breakouts had at 42% rate. That's just looking at the first round. It gets worse as we go on. Second is BMI. It's been a big discussion recently. His BMI is 23.1, which is crazy, um, crazy low. Like he might be the lightest player from a BMI perspective to ever enter the league. Um, and then when we look at the BMI perspective, um, the the cutoff that I like to use is sub 26. So there's been one top 12 season from a 26 or lower BMI perspective um, in the last, since 2003, that was to Sean Jackson and he's hit multiple times. So one player um, there's been five top 24 seasons from a player since 2003. So like we are really looking at a very, very small sample and a very, very few number of players that actually hit um, from a, from a, uh, a BMI perspective. I mean, you can compare that for, so it's a 4% hit rate at it for at a, at a top 12 season. Um, and when you look at the above BMI threshold, we're looking at a 27% hit rate. So it's almost like nine times the amount um, it's concerning. The third part, and um, it's an interesting article. Rich Rebar is the one who uh, really brought this to attention, is that he's a senior, and senior wide receivers just don't hit very well. Um, and I think that the there has been one Power 5 senior who's hit in the last, um, I think it's the last 10 years, and that's Eric Decker. And... We're looking at <clears throat> looking at a sample of like 59 wide receivers, one power five wide receiver who's hit uh, for a wide receiver one season. We've had a couple who've hit for wide receiver two. When we exclusively look at the first round, where Smith will be drafted, there we've never had a wide receiver one hit. We have had one wide receiver two season, which was Devontae Parker. It just doesn't happen um, from that perspective. Uh, Jalen Waddle, on the other hand, he didn't. He never really broke out, so I have questions about him. Um, I prefer him to Smith because I think he's more dynamic. I think he has a much higher ceiling in the NFL. I think he'd be a superstar. Um, his freshman year was phenomenal. He he didn't break out, but he did enough to really raise some eyebrows and, and say, okay, well, maybe this player is actually good because he outproduced Ruggs. He outproduced Smiths. He outproduced a whole bunch of, uh, a whole bunch of like really good players on the Alabama team. Last year, I have questions about like what he was doing. I, I, I don't really have a good explanation for it, to be honest. Um, but he posted one of the best punt return se like return seasons of all time. Sixth, I think he posted the sixth highest punt return average ever. Um, he's a dynamic player. I've seen him come to Tyreek Hill. I, I, I that feels like a stretch, um, but he's definitely in that mold. I I think that he has potential to be one of the best wide receivers in this class. But he, if he hits, he will be an outlier. Like 
I don't love either guy. I think their profiles are questions, but I definitely prefer uh, Waddle to Smith. I think that he is a much higher ceiling. All right, so with all those guys, that whole Alabama room that we've been talking about here, would Waddle then be the guy? Like, is he your best out of this entire group of Judy, Ruggs, Smith, and uh, and Waddle? I, I think Judy and Waddle kind of stand alone. Um, Judy's sophomore season was phenomenal. It really was. But he is, I have questions about what he was doing elsewhere. Um, Waddle never was really a hit. So it it's tough. I think Waddle has I, – I think they're on a pedestal like far, far above the other two. Um, and I think Ruggs is like dead last. I, I think Smith, I think Smith can be a productive NFL player. I don't think he is deserving of being in tier one. And that's a concern that I have. Chris Moxley, you can find him on Twitter at Chris Moxley19. That's Moxley with an E. Chris, thank you for giving us a cold shower. Thank you, my friend. I appreciate you guys for having me. Thanks for jumping on, Chris. All right, let's go to the Debbie debates, gentlemen. Are we ready for the Debbie debates? Let's do it. All right, let me. This is the playoff edition. So we've got uh, this Friday, number four Notre Dame versus number one Alabama, and number three Ohio State versus number two Clemson. Let me set this up. I'm going to give you two Debbie uh, darlings from Friday's playoff matchups. You have to pick one. Hit your wagon to one, either or, choose one, but there can only be one. We're going to start with Austin and Matt. Austin, Justin Fields, or DJ Uyangalele? Uh, so the answer is obviously Fields. The answer is obviously Fields. Let's okay. Get that out. I didn't want to have to yell two weeks in a row, so I was really getting nervous there. I didn't know how long I could pause before, like, Matt would just, you know. I was already turning red. Broke, I, could so. feel I could feel my face was turning red, so. However, since I know that you're going to talk about Justin Fields, I do just want to highlight some of the reasons why I think it's a little bit closer than you know. It just kind of sounds like a dumb question right off the bat. So the, the thing that I really like about, about DJ that, that maybe – I like more than I like about Fields. Obviously, he's a little bit bigger. He's got that prototypical size. He's got a better arm. Um, whether the arm is more talented or not, you know, I don't. I don't really like the term arm talent, but he definitely has the bigger arm of the two. Mobility-wise, they're similar. And with DJU being, you know, two inches and fifteen pounds heavier, I mean, obviously that's impressive on his behalf. And the thing that the probably the biggest thing that DJU has going for him right now is that he doesn't have enough tape to really rip him yet. He's only played a couple games. Um, and we didn't, ex you know, have the lofty expectations that we have every time Justin Fields uh, he runs out there and puts on a helmet. So I think that's going to be the big thing going for him this offseason. I don't fall into that trap and trade Justin Fields for DJU straight up. Do not do that. Um, I still, you know, uh, of the last three years, Fields is still my quarterback too out of those three classes. He just happens to be in a class with possibly one of the greatest quarterback prospects of all time. So the answer, obviously Justin Fields, but do not sleep on DJU. Yeah, I mean, I, I do not think it's a massive separation between the two. I'll agree with you on that. But Fields, I mean, if you were going to go DJU, I would say, I mean, just very clearly for me, the reason I take Fields is because he's proven it. He's already proved it at a college level. Now, we'll say DJU, like you said, small sample size, but 
he looked good against a very good Notre Dame defense that I think, you know, is is probably going to give Alabama some fits early in this game. So the fact that DJ did look as good as he did in that game, I think shows that he's going to, or at least has the ceiling to be a very good prospect. But it's Justin Fields for me as well. I agree. Uh, DJU's probably got more zip on his ball when he throws it. But I think from what I've seen from Fields so far, he's more accurate. I love his ball placement. I think he's more... Uh, more of a dual threat than DJU is, especially when it comes to, to run. Fields is can almost look like a running back at times when he's out there running, making players miss. So I think that's a little bit of added edge he gets over DJU, but DJU has the better arm overall, I think. Throwing the ball down the field, so yeah, I'm with you. It's it's Fields for me, I would say somewhat easily, but that's also, if we're, if we're talking from a college side and like C2C Debbie side, I, I would always take Fields first because you know you're about to get that, that uh the talent and the production at the NFL side now as well. Uh, but I mean, DJU, I think, will still have a phenomenal college career. All right. I want to uh, uh, toss up another freshman versus draft eligible uh, question. Travis Etienne or Kyron Williams? Austin, you and I will take this one. Um, we heard about we heard from Chris about fade, fading power five seniors. But I think if we combined the 2021 and 2022 classes, ETN would still be near the top over Brees Hall, over Isaiah Spiller, and over Kyron Williams. Uh, I, I like Kyron Williams. He is tough. He's a tough SOB. But Notre Dame has the second highest rated run blocking grade, that offensive line, second highest to Buffalo. And so we see um, Jared Patterson running through these open lanes, and, and that's what Kyron Williams uh, has, has done as a freshman. Very good, tough player. Um, and, and I know that you know, Travis Etienne has had a down season for his standards, but he's been so productive. He's been so versatile. And you have to believe that he's going to get at least day two capital, which day two capital for running backs now is, is premium capital. Um, it's it, the, the, the second round is essentially the first round uh, for running backs. You got to grade that on a curve. We don't know that yet uh, about Kyron Williams, whether or not he will kind of secure that 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 day two capital. Uh, um, <clears throat> excuse me. Travis Etienne has also averaged seven yards for his career at Clemson and as good a season as Kyron Williams has had. He's only at uh, 5.4 this season. So, you know, give me Travis Etienne. Uh, maybe I didn't ask tough enough questions. Austin, who you got? Yeah, I mean, I think it's ETN too. And I think, um, I mean, you were saying about, you know, ETN Harris, and I, I think you can throw Hall and Spiller in that same tier. And then there's definitely a drop off to to anybody else in these next two classes. I do really, really like Kyron Williams, though. Um, I think I said a couple weeks ago on the show that Kyron Williams is what we all want Eric Gray to be or what we expected him to be as, as a prospect. Um, I sat down and finally got to watch, you know, three or four games of Kyron a couple weeks ago. And for a guy that's learning the position, I mean, he's he's pretty new to being a running back. He does a lot of little things really, really well. Um, specifically, I mean, he's a really good pass blocker. You see him laying out linebackers and safeties mm -hmm. all the time. And the thing that I love about him is that he has like that uncanny ability to make himself extremely small at contact and guys just like can't wrap him up. Like he just bounces off people because you, he just gets so low and he's got that low center of gravity that he, he's hard to, you know, he's like a, what a greased pig or whatever. So um, yeah, I think the answer is pretty clearly ETN who I think people have started to talk themselves out of during the course of this season. Um, but, but Williams is a great prospect in his own, his own right. I'd be happy with either of those guys. And, you know, and honestly at current value, maybe I would take Kyron Williams over ETN. Um, even though I think ETN might be the better player. 
All right. Maybe I save the toughest question for last. Matt, you and I, let's go head to head. Michael Mayer, tight end from Notre Dame, the freshman phenom, or John Mechie, the wide receiver for Alabama. Who you got? I'm taking Mayer. I don't know if that's going to be uh, controversial or not. I like Mechie. I think he is going to be a good wide receiver in college and probably going on to the NFL level. The one thing I think all of us can probably agree on is that evaluating tight ends at the college level coming into the NFL is not easy. It's probably one of the hardest positions to evaluate when you're trying to scout them moving on to the NFL level. So when you see guys that are transcendent and you just know from the minute you watch them that they're going to be good at the college level and going on to the NFL level, I want. I want those guys because I think that tight end position is few and far between. We don't get the George Kittles that nobody's talking about out of Iowa goes in the third round of the NFL draft and comes down as an absolute beast you know I think Travis Kelsey was still a fairly highly rated uh, prospect coming into the NFL so give me a guy like Michael Marrier who is already proving it as a true freshman that he's one of the best uh, tight ends not just in his class but in college football overall yeah I gotta wait a couple years to get him but I don't think John Mechie is anything special in his wide receiver group compared to what Mayer is at the tight end position I could get a wide receiver later or earlier than John Mechie. I think could probably outproduce him where I don't think I'm getting that with Mayer. So I would take Michael Mayer. You know, I don't think it's out of the question that Mayer is the better player than Eric Gilbert. And Eric Gilbert came in with all of the hype. But, you know, Michael Mayer is 6'5", 250, running a 4'8", 40 at least at his, at his verified results in high school. That's some inertia for you. I mean, you can see how fit like he you do. That's not somebody you want to tackle. And I wish that I would have been paying attention because he actually played right down the uh, right down the about an hour and a half down the road for me. And I wish I would have gotten to see him play in high school. But let's take uh, Bruni. I think that you actually convinced me. I had originally thought that I was going to take Mechie. So let me just say, state the reasons why he's going to be the primary receiver for Bryce Young, Bryce Young next year. Um, and that offense is going to continue to fire on all cylinders with Bryce Young at the helm, especially with Bryce Young improvising and making plays and being able to throw the ball deep after he's uh, broken out of the pocket. Um, and my, my concern with, with tight ends is st- that position is still dependent on your environment. We've seen these players taken in the first round go all the way back to Vernon Davis you know I think you have to go back to DJ Shock or uh, DJ Shockey uh, for Miami you know with the Giants where you've seen someone really have an elite elite career after um, being drafted highly and being so highly touted John Mechie one thing I like to see is players that have high yards per catch catch averages he has 44 catches for 782 yards this season for um, averaging 17 yards a catch. So he is getting down the field. I think I'm trying to figure out what my opinion is. You could probably sell Michael Mayer and get John Mechie plus, and that might be the way to go. That might be the way to go. Or you just hold on to the coveted asset. I'm not answering this question. I'm not answering. <laughs> All right. I, I plead the fifth. All right. Hey, um, go to the show page at Debbie Debate and answer the polls we just put up. Justin Fields or DJ Uyunglele, Travis Etienne or Kyron Williams, and Michael Mayer or John Mechie. All right, gentlemen, good show. Let's close the show with parting shots. Mr. Bruning, you have Wait. the floor. 
before before we do our parting shots, I wanna I wanna pick the games really quick, really quick, discuss them. Uh, oh, so okay. Start with start with the first one. Notre Dame, Alabama. What do you guys think? Any shot, Notre Dame? Any shot? I mean, if we gave him fifteen points, would you take it, Notre Dame? I don't. No. I don't think so. No. I think so. I wrote in my article that's that's coming out tomorrow that I think it's going to be forty. I think I put forty-one twenty-four. I think is what I put as a final. Like I do think it'll be close for like the first half because no, I gotta respect Notre Dame's defense, but I just think Alabama no. eventually pulls away. Their offense is just too good. Do you? Uh, I guess the, the big one, the one everybody has been waiting for. I think it's going to be probably the best game, regardless of who wins mm-hmm. this. I think Alabama's the championship favorite. They're the best team, I think, out of the four. Mm-hmm. Regardless if it's Ohio State or Clemson, I think it's going to be Alabama who wins. But who do you guys think wins out of that night game, Clemson and Ohio State? I don't have a good sense for whose defense is better between Clemson's and Ohio State. I think that their offenses are comparable, but I don't have a good feel for which defense is better. I mean, we saw um, Indiana light up Ohio's defense, at least in the second half, and obviously Clemson can do that. If I had a better sense for who whose um, you know, who's, uh, uh, defense was better, then, then I can answer this question. And then I, the thing is, is, I think I think Ohio State has the better skill position players outside of the quarterback. Um, I, but I'm I'm gonna take I'm gonna take Trevor Lawrence. I'm gonna take Trevor Lawrence to to pull it out in a cl- in a close game. So, mm. Austin, you're muted. Austin, you're muted. You're muted. Since we don't ever really let you talk on this podcast, it makes sense. <laughs> and seriously, that's two weeks in a row now. I'm so embarrassed. Oh man, I said I would never do that. Um. Yeah, I think uh, I think there's going to be like some weird guy on Clemson that goes off, EJ um, Williams, like a uh, Braden Galloway or like a Cornell Powell or some someone weird that's not really you know one of their big guys. Um, I, th- I think Clemson's going to be able to pass all over him, to be honest. Um, I think that's going to spell the end for for Ohio State. But- I'm, I'm I'm worried about it. I am. I think. Go ahead, Felix. What are you going to say? I was going to say pick. I was going to say pick Bruning. Who you got? I mean, I'm, I'm picking the Buckeyes to win. I can't not pick them, but I don't think it's. My my thing is, it's two different teams than what we saw last year. They're not at all the same teams, offensively or defensively. The Buckeyes' defense last year, you know, I, I listened to the interviews from Dabo Sweeney the other day talking about how they were able to, like, physically beat up T. Higgins and Justin Ross. Well, they don't have the guys that they – they don't have the three top – the fir, three first-round cornerbacks that were drafted last year. They don't have them anymore. I like Sean Wade. He's not as good as those guys. And I, I think – What's going to be interesting for me is Sean Wade's clearly their best uh, secondary player. Do they end up putting him on the slot against Amari Rodgers? One thing everybody forgets is Sean Wade was the best lockdown slot cornerback last year, and they moved him to the outside this year because he wants to get that that draft capital. If Amari Rodgers starts going off, do they move Sean Wade into the slot to cover Amari Rodgers? That d- does that take him away? And if it does, like Austin was saying, who's that other guy that steps up? My other thing is Ohio State has been one of the best teams against the run this year. I think they'll be able to shut down Travis Etienne. But will they be able to stop Lawrence from doing to them what he did last year? Because that huge breakaway run was kind of what what hurt them. And then Travis Etienne getting some of those screen passes hurt them as well. But I do think Borland uh, is going to be able to possibly shut that down. Or Warner. Warner is a very good pass cover linebacker. I wonder if he'll be able to kind of shadow Etienne somewhat to slow that down. I'm with Felix. I think it's going to be a close game. I'm picking Ohio the one thing I'll say is last year, in my opinion, Ohio State should have won the game if Olave doesn't run the wrong route. I think this year 
they find a way on that last drive, same thing, drive down the field doesn't happen this time. I think they win it literally on the last drive of the game like they were going to last year before that play, but it's going to be close. And I, I'll say this, I would not be surprised if Clemson ends up blowing them out, though, because they their defense is good. Their bend-don't-break defense, the biggest issue with them is they tend to almost get less – Lazy, I don't want to say lazy, but they tend to give up these massive plays at times, like we saw with Indiana, like we saw with Northwestern. If they do that against guys like Trevor Lawrence and Travis Etienne, it's going to cost them. All right. Uh, ready to close the show, Bernie? I am. So speaking of the playoffs, uh, I think that it's about time that we expand them. I, I feel a little bit we've talked about the past couple episodes uh, about the transfer portal, and, and Austin brought up how all of these prospects seem to be going to the same schools, and we equated it to possibly the playoffs. I think we did a lot of that discussion on the off uh, the after-hour show that we do, uh, but I do think it's time to expand them. We've seen that it's really been these four teams in Oklahoma in the playoffs almost every single year. Georgia's made an appearance once uh, – We've seen Washington make an appearance, but we've seen teams like an Oregon made an appearance, obviously, as well. USC, Texas, Florida, LSU has been in there one year. Like we've seen these, these usual powerhouses in college football have not been able to get back to that promised land. And I think a lot of it is because you see the Alabamas, the Clemsons, the Ohio States of the world in the playoffs every single year. So this talent wants to go to these schools because they want to be in the playoffs. I don't know if eight's the right number, 12, 16, whatever the right number is. But I think if we want to see more upsets, more fun in the college football era, we need to expand it because I think it's just going to continue to be these four, these four schools with maybe a mix in of Georgia here and there, or maybe another LSU again. Maybe we finally see USC kind of break the, break it break in and get in one year but i really think that the they need to expand it so that we can see more diversity in the playoffs and and possibly some more fun i'd love to see georgia versus alabama not alabama georgia versus cincinnati this year in the playoffs and see if maybe cincinnati could have pulled an upset so i just wanted to do a, a brief ode to fantasy or to football in 2022 as a whole this evening um you know as the fantasy football season here winds down it's really easy for us to get caught up in the, the fallout from the performance of our teams uh, but as we count the money that we've won or, uh, you know, that some of us have missed out on, perhaps, I, I think a huge thank you is in order. And that thank you goes out to all the men and women who worked hard to make football happen this year, both college and professional. Uh, there are countless individuals uh, whose names we will probably never know, from doctors to lab workers, from those tasked with keeping team facilities sanitized and safe. Um, to obviously coaches and players. Uh, and the biggest thank you to those guys. Uh, playing a game for millions of dollars is not bravery, and neither is doing so during a global pandemic, even one that has left hundreds of uh, thousands of Americans dead without even counting those abroad. But those players who are willing to sacrifice time with their families and their friends to give us, uh, their fans, some sense of normalcy this year should be applauded regardless. And an even bigger salute to those college players who play without pay, or at least that's what we're led to believe. Even as more information was gathered that showed the long-term medical effects, effects of COVID, these amateurs, and I say that merely as a descriptor and not as an indictment of their skill, continue to play games across the country in stadiums that were typically empty or sparsely packed, all for the dream of one day making it to the NFL. So goodbye to 2020. We won't miss you, but thank you for a full season of football, no matter how unusual it was. If you're like me, you know a little too much about the Miami Marlins history in South Florida, despite not living in Miami and having no affiliation with the city or the state of Florida. You know, the Clevelander has nothing to do with Ohio. And if you're going to ask Allison a fantasy football question like, who should I start, Mitch Trubisky or Case Keenum? 
you know to be prepared you know to be prepared for her to ask you PPR or non PPR. You know it's Tom and not Tim Kirkchen. If you're a loyal listener of the Dan Levitard show with two Stu Gotts, you know that Russell Wilson looks like a dolphin trainer and Andy Reid looks like he waggles his fingers in front of a tray of donuts and says, "Don't mind if I do." But this coming Monday will be the last show on ESPN for the misfit group that habitually pressed up against ESPN's corporate boundaries and obliterated sports radio tropes. The Dan Lebetard show was and is unique. The show could move from a discussion of whether you're a stander or sitter and realizing that the other even existed to the politics of separating children from their parents at the Mexican border. Dan Lebetard was the only minority host on national sports radio who more often than not said the very thing that I was thinking about some important national discussion. He refused to stick to support. He refused to stick to sports. He gave microphones to women and other minorities, and the least of which he helped me get through workouts, commutes, and the balance of a in the balance of quarantining during this month's this months on end pandemic. And so, for one last time, at least for ESPN, let me just say, thank you, Dan. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Dan. All right, that's going to be our show for tonight. You can follow Matt at Sports Fanatic, at Sports Fanatic MB. Follow Austin at Debbie Deets. Follow me at Sharp Review. Email the show at Debbie Debate at gmail.com. Follow the show at Debbie Debate on Twitter. Apologies to Kirk Street. We went a little long with Chris, Chris Moxley, so we had to bump Kirk, but we promised to get him rescheduled soon. And for Matt Bruning and Austin Nace, I'm Felix Sharp. Good night and good luck. Happy New Year, everybody. Intercepted by Eli Apple at the 25, and Apple will go to the ground at the 32, and that's it. Ohio State national champions for the eighth time as they defeat Oregon 42 to 20. Here's Tua stepping back, loads up, looks long, throws, end zone, touchdown, touchdown Alabama, Devontae Smith, touchdown Alabama. And the Crimson Tide has once again ascended to the top of the college football mountain. Their fifth national championship in nine years. Their 17th overall. And for Watson takes a snap, rolls right, looks at the end zone. Hunter and Bell caught it. Touchdown! 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 With a second left, Watson hits Renfro. And Clemson grabs a 34-31 lead and is one second away from the second national championship in school history. Hill, just in front of his end zone, has a man out there. It is Ranger, and he's off to the races. Nobody will catch him. For the freshman. He made the adjustments in the second quarter. Dobbins again, more than 10 yards per carry. He'll add to that. Goodbye. Touchdown, Ohio State. From 52 yards.